Old Man Winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice and a good polar vortex. Oh, <laughs> heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, Old Man Winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1,500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. You're listening to the MLB.com StatCast Podcast. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. It's our first podcast of the offseason. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. Hey, if you like this thing, subscribe on iTunes or whatever you get your podcasts on. It would be very good and cool, uh, and it would really help us out, and we'd appreciate it. We have two very cool guests tonight I'm very excited to talk to you in a little bit. We're going to get to Ryan Spielborgs, uh, former outfielder for the Colorado Rockies, and he's going to tell us about all the weird things a ball does at altitude. Right now, we've got, you know, it's always good to have a friend on the show, and it's always better when that friend is one of the best baseball writers out there. So we have Eno Saris today from Fangraphs and Beergraphs and Hardball Times and all over the place. Eno, how are you? I'm great, and it's great to talk to you again. Great. So listen, Eno, you've kind of carved yourself out a little bit of a niche, uh, as it were, because there's a lot of guys who are writing about advanced stats and analytics and sabermetrics and so on. But very few of them actually spend a lot of time in the locker room, as you do when, when teams come through San Francisco and Oakland. And so, you know, I'm kind of interested in how that's worked for you because you've gotten some really good stuff. And I know you've gotten some pushback from some guys. You, you wrote semi-famously about how uh, the Kansas City Royals didn't treat you particularly well a few years ago. But um, what I think is interesting is you've got these guys who are dealing with the same cliche questions from the same guys every day for years. And they hear you come in with, quote unquote, intelligent questions. And uh, I'm interested to hear what happens when you find a guy who really like is into that. Does do his eyes just light up? Is he so thrilled to have a different line of questioning from someone like you? <laughs> there's, I, th- I say there's like always a moment, maybe three, four, five questions into our conversation where there's a there's a change in temperature. You know, there's there's sort of like it can go it can go either way they, because there are especially with hitters they're a little bit more cagey. And they feel a little bit more vulnerable when they're talking about their approach. And, um, you know, I think talking to Josh Donaldson, I finally figured out what it is, is that they're, they're afraid of there's a certain uh, a two-strike approach, you know, that, that hitters take that you can actually sometimes see. And it's something that I learned this year from talking to catchers. So sometimes they'll move their feet a certain way, they'll hang over the plate, they'll choke up, they'll do something that you could see and that you could take advantage of. And when I was talking to Josh Donaldson about two-strike approach or what he does when a pitcher keeps hitting the outside corner, and that's not necessarily, you know, his his favorite spot, what he does about it, he said, no, I can't tell you that. We've gone too far. Like, I can tell you all about what I think about my body and my swing and my hands and this and that, but I can't I can't tell you something that could be used against me. And so, so sometimes three or four questions into the interview, often with hitters, they'll be kind of like, uh, okay, you are you're asking me things that could be used against me, 
and I have to be more careful with you. Well, I guess that's a good sign, right? That means you're, you're asking questions down the right track if they're actually worried about giving that information that can be really, you know, used on the field. <laughs> I, I was so amazed. I was so, I was, it, was like a, it was a mixture of happiness and sort of like attaboy. When, Do, when Josh Donaldson told me that, I, because we'd been having such a great interview, and we'd gone so far, and it, was, it seemed like a great hitting mechanics interview. And then I, when I found that moment, I was like, ah, that's great. That, that, that's awesome. And it was a lot, very different from my experience with the Royals. I, I hadn't really learned how to speak the language of the clubhouse, and I hadn't really learned how to sort of translate nerd speak into jock speak. And I, people, people are like, oh, you say jock's dumb. No, no, they just speak a different language. They're just speaking the language of coaches um, and, and on-field baseball stuff. So instead of just talking about rates and ratios, I talk about swing planes and you know, uh, you know, different pitching, mecha- you know, mechanical things and stuff like that. Instead of asking them about their pitch FX rise and, and stuff like that, so you know, there are certain ways I have to I have to do it. But then, you know, yes, there are. You know, Zach Greinke. This is a great, a great example. Uh, first time I asked Zach Greinke in an interview, he just said no, <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, okay, that makes me sad. Uh, so the second time I came up, and he said. Is it going to be interesting? And I was like, is any of this? Or no, he said, like, is it going to be important? I was like, is any of this important? Like, Don't waste and my time, like, basically, right? <laughs> he rolled his eyes at me, and I was like, oh, God. So the third time I came up to him, I said, I said, do you, do you have a second? And he goes, do you have anything good for me? <laughs> and I was like, you know, I remembered that he was kind of, you know, he was kind of saber savvy. I just... I was like, I, I give up, man. I'm from Pancraft. <laughs> and he goes, oh, that's good. What you got? See? <laughs> Look at that. Dropping. <laughs> well, so guys like, like Granke, uh, Trevor Bauer, a couple other guys, I think are pretty well known as being into that sort of thing. What player really surprised you as being interested that you never thought would be into it? Uh, well, Chris Young was, a, was an interesting uh, one because... That's the pitching Chris I, Young? I don't... Yeah, yeah, the pitching Chris Young. I don't think that he... I'm not sure that he reads uh, what's out there. You know, like Trevor Bauer, uh, Brandon McCarthy, Zach Cranky, they read what's out there. Um, I was uh, incredibly uh, happy when, when Granky said, there's a lot of bad stuff out there. Your stuff's pretty good. <laughs> you got to get that framed somehow. <laughs> yeah, I wish I could. Um, then, uh, you know, but uh, I, those guys read and are, are talk the sort of language that we talk. Chris Young thinks like those guys, but doesn't necessarily read the current uh, research that's out there. So, you know, you've kind of become semi-famous for uh, coining a phrase, as it were, the, the Dan Worthen slider, uh, which is the, <laughs> the low-spin, high-velocity sliders uh, that the Mets throw. And there's, as far as velocity on sliders, there's four Mets in the top 30, DeGrom, Familia, Harvey, and Robles. Uh, and it, it's pretty impressive, and that's kind of a, a well you've gone back to a couple of times. So I'm interested to know, how did you first notice that about the Mets, that the sliders were all low spin? Like, what really caught your eye about this group? Actually, you know, I, I, I would only take credit for sort of taking it mainstream. Uh, there's a certain uh, group of Mets analysts and, and writers that have talked about it a little bit. And just, uh, you know, I would take credit for asking Dan Worthen about it and talking to, to Noah Syndergaard about it and, uh, and, and talking to, to Jake DeGrom about it. And I guess the, the first time I heard about it was I did a piece about why we missed on Jake DeGrom. And so I talked to Jake DeGrom about his development process. And he told me that Frank Viola taught him a curveball and Johan Santana taught him a changeup grip 
uh, and that, um, you know, those things were really important to him coming up through the system, and that he didn't really have those pitches as a closer coming out of Stetson. And then, he, and then he told me that, you know, it all sort of came together when the slider got harder. And when he, when he bumped up the velocity on the slider, you know, four or five miles an hour, and uh, he didn't actually say Dan wasn't at the time, or else, you know, some alarms might have gone off. But I wrote that piece saying, you know, Jake DeGrom is, a, is sort of a hero of Mets development. And, you know, you can talk about Ron Romanek, Frank Viola, Phil Regan, and Dan Worthen as guys that shaped Jake DeGrom. But, um, you know, going back and picking out that thing about Jake DeGrom saying his slider got harder and that it got better that way, that's how I sort of got into the Dan Worthen slider. And I think it is interesting. I mean, Worthen says it's not about movement. We're not really trying to, to get a big slider with big movement. What we're trying to do is make it look like a fastball, make it healthy. He, he talks about not really trying to manipulate the ball and just sort of, you know, throwing the ball and then, uh, you know, messing with it a little bit with your fingers at the end. And uh, basically, it sounds a lot like what you might call a cutter, but it is a little bit different from a cutter, too. So I think it's a really interesting sort of hybrid pitch that's out there. So another thing that you, you do a lot, uh, it's almost a little cottage industry, is whenever uh, there's a picture or a, a video or a still image of a really good shot of a pitcher's grip on any kind of pitch, inevitably Twitter will rise up and send it to you because you've been kind of the, the curator of pitch grips here. And uh, I think it's fascinating because obviously when we're looking at StatCast, spin rate is a huge thing for us. And it's interesting to see whether there can be a, an effect on spin rate based on pitch grips. And so you talked to Trevor Bauer about this last year, uh, and he actually was trying to increase his, his spin rate. He says, I'm quoting your words here, I tried, I tried different grips, I tried pine tar, I tried thinking about the spin, I tried everything, and it didn't work. Have you talked to any pitchers who really have been able to change their spin based on a pitch grip? Well, you know what he was talking about in particular, and that's, I think, a little bit separate from the, the rest of the thing. He was talking about getting rise uh, and getting spin backspin on his on his four seam, and um, you know that has actually been uh, something I've interviewed five, six, seven, eight pitchers about because everybody has a different answer. Nobody knows exactly how they do it, and it's why Bauer is so frustrated. And, you know, Kurt Schilling talks about slapping the seams on the four seam, pulling them down really hard to get that that backspin and get that rise. Um, you know, when I talk to Sean Doolittle, who has a great rising fastball about it, he said, I really have to watch how, how extended I get out in front and I have to watch my stride and I have to watch, you know, the length, my length, because I need to release it at the right moment. Um, other guys talk about getting really behind the ball. And I talked to Colin McHugh, and he said, I really have to pretend it's long toss and I'm throwing the ball through the umpire's face. Um, so, you know, each of them had a different way to get rise on the, fa- on the riding fastball, and I think that's one of the kind of mysteries out there is how that happens. But otherwise, you know, I do think there are, you know, Jake Arrieta has, you know, one slider grip, but he has three different sliders that come out of that grip, and he talks about finger pressure. Um, he talks about dragging his lower body a little bit to slow down uh, the ball and deaden it a little bit to get a slower slider. So there's all, you know, the grip is one part of, you know, release, uh, hand posture, you know, at release, arm slot. Um, and it's, it's a part that I find really interesting and it's, it's really accessible, I think, because you can talk to so many pitchers that changed their grip and found something huge and just were like, ah, oh, you know, this changeup wasn't working. Dan Straley was the first person I ever talked to about it. He tried 17 different changeup grips and the last one was the one that, that finally uh, worked for him. So, I think it is something that a lot of pitchers talk about in bullpens and 
a lot of pitchers fiddle with, pitching coaches, you know, you know, do talk about grips, but it's also a part of a bigger picture. I'm now trying to envision uh, the possibility of 17 different change-up grips, and I'm not sure that I actually can. <laughs> Listen, I don't want to give anything away here, but uh, you are going to be writing in the upcoming Hardball Times annual, and I'm clearly biased about this because I built the dem site, but you are going to be writing, I believe, about pitcher fatigue in terms of not so much losing velocity, but missing their spots, and I know that came up with Jacob deGrom in the playoffs. Do you want to give us a sneak preview, maybe a 60-second version of how you're going to approach that? Actually, it's a little bit more about uh, just command in general because there was this interesting finding that came out, command effects from Sports Vision. Uh, Sport Vision. They, they came out with this finding that, the, that pitchers miss the glove by 13 inches on average with their fastball. So if you, if you use the glove as a target and then you know, measure that to, to impact, that's about 13 inches on average with a fastball. And so I went around and asked a bunch of pitchers and catchers about that and you know, some of them said that's ridiculous. That can't be the number. That must be skewed by really big misses. Uh, do they check for runners on? So there were some issues with those numbers. And then I also tried to, um, you know, find some new command numbers. And one of them was about command of the breaking ball. I do think this was something that you saw a little bit in the playoffs with as they got they got, as they got tired. It is an important thing to think about. It is also very important uh, to figure out how to measure it right. And it's very difficult because. If you think about a hanging breaking ball, think about a, a breaking ball that someone throws for a get-me-over strike. You know, the, 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 the breaking ball nobody wants you to swing at, the, the breaking ball in 0-0, zero, zero, you know, the first pitch curveball. That curveball is going to be in the zone, and if you just looked at it by itself, it would look like a hanging, a hanging curveball. You know? It would just be like a lollipop curveball that was right in the middle of the zone. He's, he's throwing that because the guy doesn't want to swing, and when he sees curveball, he's not going to swing and uh, it's going to drop in for a strike. So you really have to think about count, and you really have to think about intent uh, when, you, when you talk about command of breaking pitches. And so I tried to, to separate things out by count and intent and situation uh, and find some guys that are really good at commanding their breaking ball. You know, final question, and it's a quick one, and it's not about baseball. You also run beer graphs, which is a, an attempt to apply analytics to beer. And I looked at that. You have 47,721 beers ranked Two of the three lowest-ranked beers are pumpkin beer. Uh, and so I ask you, have we reached a tipping point? Can we finally rid ourselves of the plague of pumpkin beer? <laughs> I am with you, brother. <laughs> yeah, I do not like that. It tastes like some sort of uh, coffee spice packet that you get in your, in your, in your latte. It, it's chemicals. It's been brewed up in some kind of lab. It's, not, it's just not natural. <laughs> yeah. Eno, thanks. thanks actually, so- uh, just a note about okay. that. Uh, on Beergrass, we had a piece. We found that the rate of new pumpkin beers is slowing. That is the so, best news I've heard all day. That it is happening. We're past peak pumpkin. No, nothing has made me happier. Eno Saris, Fangrass, <laughs> and Beergrass, thanks so much. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. All right, talk to you soon. My next guest played 619 games for the Colorado Rockies between 2005 and 2011. He's been the pre- and post-game host for the Rockies on Root Sports for the last two years, and next season he will be in the TV booth full-time replacing the retiring George Frazier. Ryan Spielborgs, how are you? Good, thanks, Mike. Yeah, it's- it's kind of weird when you say I played 619 games. It feels like that's not a lot, uh, but then at the same time, it feels like that was a ton. I think I, I think I do rank in like the top 10 or top 50 all-time Rockies uh, games played. So uh, either a blessing or a curse, I don't know, but one of the two. 619 more games that, than I have played in the major leagues. So I think I would, I would look at it as a good thing. Uh, listen, I really wanted to talk to you about what it's like to play baseball at altitude, and that's a nut that no one's been able to crack so far. 
uh, really one of my big off-season projects is I'm going to look at spin rates at Colorado for different pitches as opposed to on the road. Uh, and I'm hopeful that that's really going to help us work out what, what really makes it so difficult. Like For example, I looked at the Rockies this year. Uh, they hit 302 at home, and I hate batting average, but in this context, it doesn't really matter that it ignores walks. Uh, that's the best. And then they hit 228 on the road. That's the worst. I mean, that is kind of the same thing you see every single year. They hit great at home. They hit pretty terribly on the road. And I've got a lot of theories, and we can go through them. But first, I want to know, what's the number one thing to you what makes it so much easier to hit at home than on the road when you're a Rocky? Oh, I think it's, I mean, every single team is going to hit better at home versus the road. I mean, even even Giants batters, well, and typically last year the Giants hit a lot better on the road, but typically you're going to hit better at home for several reasons. I mean, you're sleeping in your own bed, uh, you're comfortable, you, you like the batter's eye, all those are factors. Uh, of course, Coors Field, like there, there's no way around it. The altitude does affect you, and I, I think there's been just so many different philosophies. Well, don't make it an issue. Let's make it an issue. All these different things. The simplest way I've ever said it to people is uh, when it comes to drinking beer. If you had a beer at sea level, you can probably have a couple. If you come to altitude, it hurts you, and it takes a physical toll. So it's not only on the ball. It's there is a physical toll being taken on you at altitude, and there's no way to ignore it. I mean, it happens to anybody. Um, does the ball travel farther? Of course it does. Uh, doesn't it, You don't even need a, a, a weather person to tell you that the flight of the ball is different. Now, does it fly like you barely hit a baseball and it flies out of the stadium? Absolutely not. Uh, since 2002, with the addition of the humidor, um, we've seen – Home run rates drop down quite significantly at Coors Field. But what's more important to me is when I watch it, and depending on the weather, I mean, there's times where if it's warm, it's August, it's July, there's no wind, the ball will fly out of there. I mean, and, and I'm seeing pitchers hit homers. I'm seeing uh, middle infielders with no pop hitting home runs. Um but then in April, when it's freezing cold, and May, when it's cold, the ball's not flying out of the yard, and other ballparks like a Citizens Bank, Toronto, uh, will have higher home run rates up until later on in the summer once it heats up. Uh, so there's, there's all kinds of different factors. Spin rate, I think, is a great way to start um, because as a hitter, did I notice a difference between ball flights? Do curveballs not curve? I think that's always been the thing. Does a curveball not curve? I remember talking to Ben Sheets, and he was with the Brewers at the time, and I think you remember Ben Sheets, 2007, I believe he was an all-star, uh, one of the better pitchers in baseball. He came and had a start at Coors Field and hung me a curveball, and I got it for a base hit. And he later on the next day, he saw me. He's like, man, that's where I start my curveball. Did it not curve? And I was like, well, it curved, but you know, when you start the curveball up, it tends not to break as hard. Now, if you throw it, I mean, you have to make adjustments no matter what. Just like at sea level, a guy's fastball will have a little more downward plane. So I'm seeing sinker ballers with more movement at sea level versus a curveball at altitude. But it doesn't mean that you can't have an effective curveball. Do I think spin rate changes at all at Coors Field? No. Uh, I just think it's the effect of the high altitude maybe – I mean, not really allowing it to break, but I guess that that contradicts what I just said. <laughs> it's just it's just one of those things. Like I've seen guys be successful, I've seen guys fail. Uh, more importantly, I've been on teams as far as it goes to hitting, 
that have hit well on the road. I think if you look at our 2007 stats, our home road splits, and that was a team that made it to the World Series, were nearly identical. And part of it, as much as it sounds silly, came down to the simple fact, and I believe 2009 we were another, uh, we hit very well on the road as well. It came down to the simple fact that as a team, we didn't try, try to do too much. I think you look at the Kansas City Royals this year and, and a team that didn't strike out much. They were willing to take a walk. Maybe they didn't hit homers at a great rate, uh, but they were tough outs, tough at bats, and they trusted each other in the lineup. I think something that simple had such an effect with our team at Coors Field because when you're losing four straight years in a row, as the Rockies have, you get to Coors Field and you can become a selfish player. You can think, hey, I can get all my hits. I'm going to drive the ball out of the ballpark. And then when I go on the road, I still have to hit the ball hard. That you're not taking the pitch off the corner. You're swinging too hard. You're out of control. And I honestly think that has translated. Um, winning cures all. Starting pitching has a huge effect on whether the hitters are playing good baseball or not. Uh, again, looking at the series, if you're the Mets, uh, when you're down, you're down a couple runs or you're, you're facing a bullpen that's not going to give up many runs, guys tend to swing for the fences and have uh, bad approaches. So well, I think well, you, you there's just a touched... lot more involved than just altitude, spin rates, all these different things. I think mentally there's a there has to be a significant physical change when you're hitting uh, or when you're playing as a Rocky. Well, you touched on something that I think is interesting, and I'm going to lay a theory out for you, and I want you to tell me if it holds water for you or not. It's not just that it's easier to hit at home, but I feel like the Rockies – specifically the Rockies, have a disadvantage on the road. Because, for example, here's a quote from one of your former teammates, uh, Julius Chassin, in 2013. He said, it's hard to throw a curveball in Colorado, so he doesn't throw them as often. And so I'm thinking that if that holds true, and the stats really say that it does, you see more fastballs in Colorado, you see fewer curveballs, and you're on a homestand, 7, 8, 9, 10 games, and that's all you're seeing, you're not seeing as many curveballs, or you're seeing curveballs that maybe don't break as well, and then all of a sudden you're out at sea level, that curveball that's maybe only average looks to you like it's the best curveball ever. Do you think that makes sense? Uh, of course, it makes sense. And do I think I think there there's numbers that prove it that prove what you say is right. I mean, I think there's a higher percentage of fastballs being thrown at Coors Field than when the Rockies are on the road. Uh, so yes, they are seeing a lot more off-speed pitches uh, at sea level or at different ballparks than Coors Field. Now, the interesting part to me, and it's always been, and I think. If we do talk about spin rates and you talk about, I mean, again, just picking on Kansas City Royals because they are fresh on everyone's mind, a guy like Chris Young. Uh, and Chris Young, I think, has been talked about having a high spin rate, probably one of the highest in baseball. Um, he also has great deception. And even I even heard about this when I was with the Rockies and Chris Young was still with the Padres because one of our friends was Darren Balzi, uh, pitching coach for the Padres, and he always talked about that. And this was before it really became known. It was just like, hey, the ball spins a lot for Chris Young. Now, the interesting part is pitchers like Chris Young, pitchers like a Josh Colmenter, uh, guys that can command the high part of the strike zone, the fastballs up in the zone, with a secondary pitch that isn't a curveball. Change-ups have typically been very successful there. Um, maybe a little slider cutters have been successful. I saw Johnny Cueto this year pitch primarily with a fastball cutter mix and throw eight innings pitched and command the upper part of the zone. Same with a guy like Zach Grinke. Uh, so just commanding the strike zone above the belt at Coors Field is huge be- 
because I think a lot of times in the Rockies' philosophy has been, uh, and this is a whole other conversation in itself, is trying to find pitchers that throw sinker balls. And the reason why is that singles and ground balls have no slugging percentages. Typically, that you don't, you can't hit a ground ball for a home run uh, unless I'm playing right field and it goes into the corner, and then I'll play it into a homer. But <laughs> sinker ballers tend to have two things: they have a lower strikeout rate and a higher walk rate. And then typically, when their fastballs are located up in the zone, they get hit for homers at a much higher rate. So those are like all the counterintuitive things that you would want at Coors Field. A guy that can't get a strikeout, a guy that's putting on guys more on base, and then if he does elevate a pitch, home runs are hit. Whereas a guy like I've seen, Josh Colmanter, I've mentioned these guys, where they can pitch up in the zone. They're not primarily sinker ball pitchers. They're more of a fly ball guy, but because of where their pitch locations are, and I would argue with you, these guys probably also have the high – uh, fastball rate or spin rate on their fastball, so it makes it harder for guys to get on top of the baseball. They tend to be successful at Coors Field. Well, you're absolutely right about Chris Young, and I just know this because I happened to write about him a few days ago. He does have a high spin fastball. He does keep it very high in the zone, and you know he's always done that, obviously, but I think what's really what was successful for him this year is two things. Is one is that Sal Perez is a very good high framer. He's not a great low framer, but he's very good at the high framing. And then also he gets more fly balls than anybody. And now he's playing in front of that Kansas city outfield defense. More of those fly balls turn into outs than they used to. So I think for him, uh, it's just being in the right situation. But, you know, you're absolutely right about his high spin and, and where he's putting the ball. So, well, I, I think it'd be fascinating to see a guy like that in course field. Um, I just, I worry that they I don't know about worry, but I don't know that the Rockies would ever actually go for a guy like that who's such a fly ball pitcher. Do you know what I mean? It just seems like it'd be an odd fit. No, no doubt, and that's why I said it's counterintuitive to probably think of a fly ball pitcher, but at the same, at the same time, going for strictly sinker ball pitchers, and, and to use an example, this year the Rockies went out and signed, uh, or last year they signed free agent Kyle Kendrick, and Kyle Kendrick is known as a sinker ball pitcher. Um and we, we saw the results that Kyle Kendrick had. Uh, they weren't very good at all, uh, arguably one of the worst seasons of all time <laughs> at Coors Field. So when you're not able to get the strikeout, when you're as a pitcher as those type of pitchers tend to be, they get more walks. And then, like I said, if they miss up in the zone, it gets hammered for home runs. Those pitchers, to me, even though uh, the risk-reward is ground balls, can't be hit for homers so you're assuming with the defense that the Rockies typically have uh, keep the ball in front of the outfielders that you would keep scoring down but that is my argument is that I would look for more pitchers and I would not be afraid of a fly ball pitcher if it means that he's inducing more contact whether it's a fly ball or not but just because the walk rates are down and if and typically I've seen a lot of high fly ball pitchers have much better strikeout rates I want the ability to strike people out, especially if I'm at Coors Field and I have runners at second and third and the starting staff doesn't have the ability to get that strikeout. I need a guy with the strikeout. Uh, that's what made Ubaldo so effective, even though he was he had a big walk rate. Um, he also had a high strikeout rate and the ability to get a ground ball out. He was the anomaly for the Rockies for a couple of years. So I, I think it's possible to win at Coors Field with great starting pitching. And great, and by great starting pitching, I'm not talking, you know, Matt Harvey, Noah Syndergaard, you know, a 2.0 um, ERA. I'm talking about guys that go out, compete, fight, and give you enough innings. Because the guys that I've seen, and if you want to look at the all-time Rockies pitchers, 
guys with wins and innings pitched, they're the guys that you would least expect. It'd be like a Pedro Stasio, Jeff Francis, Jason Jennings, and then Aaron Cook. Guys that would just go out there, would compete, give you six, seven innings. Nothing is going to wow you, but they understood how to pitch. And all those guys pitched high in the zone. And most of those guys had a changeup as their secondary pitch, avoiding the curveball and the slider entirely. And I and, and those guys were, like I just said, those guys were the most successful at Coors Field. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, I, I do think the one issue that the Rockies are really never, ever going to be able to overcome is is convincing guys to go there, free agents. Like, obviously, if you draft them, that's one thing. If you trade for them, it's another thing. But it's going to be tough to get any free agent to go there who doesn't have a better option somewhere else. Uh, and I think that's kind of always going to be an, an issue for them, uh, even a roadblock. And now they've got some of these young pitchers like Gray and Butler that they're hoping work out. But, you know, again, through the draft, they didn't have to, to convince anybody to go there. So I think that's going to be an issue. Uh, Ryan, I want to talk to you about something. So you are going to be moving up to the TV booth next year. Congratulations. Very cool. Thank Replacing you. the retiring George Frazier. And uh, I noticed that in the pre- and post-game shows that you've been doing over the last couple of years, you've tried to introduce some advanced stats. I believe you had a whole segment about weighted runs created plus. And I think mm-hmm. that's probably more important at Colorado really than anywhere else because hitting, say, 340 homers in Colorado is not as impressive as doing that in Petco Park, for example. And uh, of course. so I, I think taking these raw numbers and applying you know these park adjustments to them to kind of really put it on an even playing field probably more important than anywhere else. And so I'm curious, what kind of what kind of feedback did you get from that? Did fans seem to enjoy it? Is that something you think you might continue to do on the, the, the new role? I will always try to educate the viewer and the audience as best as I possibly can. If, and if I find things that maybe can tell a better story about, number one, how good a player is or how good a player is not, uh, some of the, in a pre- and post-game show, I have enough time to set it up. So if I'm doing a segment um, and, and I have the ability to describe what weighted runs created plus is, I can uh, I can announce what park adjustments means, and then I can put a player into the context of where they rank and how that's important. So in a in a pre and post game show, it's much easier for me to set that up and and present it on the game broadcast. And I've been. I've been working with bloggers and some of the people on SB Nation, uh, guys like Purple Row, uh, Rocky Zingers, people that want to see these advanced metrics in the broadcast. Uh, the challenge is and always will be something as simple as describing weighted runs created plus. Now, if you and I are talking about DJ LeMayhew and weighted runs created plus, and I'm just starting to talk about this stuff, again, I need to describe what it is. I need to reference it, and then I need to put it into context in a very short period of time during DJ's at bat. Now, if he swings first pitch and grounds out, that entire conversation is pretty much done. So I can only do it one time. Like, I'd have to dedicate the broadcast to, okay, this is the start of the game. This is what I'm going to talk about throughout the game. This is how I'm going to put it into context throughout the game. We're going to use both sides of the field. I'm going to introduce this new advanced metric to you because I think it's important. Uh, and then once that game is over, I cannot reference it the next day. Hey, you remember I was talking about weighted runs because I can't assume that everyone heard what I said the night before. So that's that's the challenge with these with these new metrics. The metrics I'm looking for now are the simpler ones. Uh, I think. Just as simple as being able to show where a hitter hits the ball, the spray chart, 
uh, that's an advanced metric in itself, and it's visual. I can put it on. You don't even have to hear me speak. Same with the heat zone, a heat map. You can see, hey, wow, this guy has an inside part of the strike zone that is blue. Like, why don't they pitch it in there? Let's pay attention to that. Again, another thing I don't even have to reference. I don't even need to speak about, but it is advanced. Again, we're, we're tracking these things. So some of the more advanced metrics that I love to get to are harder because I have to reference them. I have to put them into context for the average viewer. Now, for if, if we dedicated an entire thing, and I thought just a bit outside, the Jabo broadcasts were fantastic. I loved how they went and did the advanced metrics. But at the same time, if you watch those, those actual broadcasts, the game in itself was secondary because they were having to spend around sitting around in their discussion describing what these things are. So that is always our, our, uh, our problem that we have. And as much feedback as we can, I'm trying to get more and more into it. Um, and that's the challenge. I mean, I take all requests. I take all criticism, and I'm just trying to find a way to be better at this stuff. Yeah, and I've, I've talked to a couple of broadcasters about the same thing, and uh, they've all voiced the exact same thing that you do. It takes a while to explain some of this stuff, and then you have to do it over and over every night. Uh, and so what I think is, and I don't want to speak for all the quote-unquote stats people, is that it's less important to get in that crazy advanced stuff and just more important to not say this pitcher is good because of wins or that hitter is good because of RBIs. And uh, I think that can kind of really just even that in itself can elevate the uh, the audience. So I think that's really excited. Really looking forward to, to see what you do in the booth with uh, Drew Goodman next year. Ryan, thanks so much for your time. Ryan Spielberg's former Colorado Rockies outfielder, going to be in the booth next year. Very exciting stuff. Thanks so much. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate you having me on. Good luck. Thank you. This has been the MLB.com StackCast podcast. I'm Mike Petriello. Thanks so much to my guests, Eno Saris from Fangraphs, Ryan Spielberg's from Root Sports in the Colorado Rockies. Catch you next week.